it's a it's a common question and it's a challenge that I think we all uh, have faced and uh, I should probably say continue to face even uh, going on the fourth decade for myself and, and Kamala of just how to um, bring more awareness into our life and how to bring the benefits of that awareness into our life and to integrate it, not just to have a kind of a, uh, a Dharma practice over here and the rest of life over here and somehow try to let them coexist and, and really try to bring them together and integrate them so that uh, we're really living from a place of Dharma understanding and Dharma perspective uh, rather than kind of superficially kind of smearing on a Dharma flavor on top of a very undharmic <laughs> lifestyle. <laughs> so, okay, now how do we do that? Well, um, of course, doing uh, a daily practice is, is, is helpful. Um, doing uh, a, a weekly or monthly practice with others is a great support. Uh, going on periodic retreats like this is, a, is, a, is really uh, kind of a, a super boost as well. Um, reading some can be helpful. Discussion groups can be helpful. Maybe one of the most uh, rewarding, uh, challenging and rewarding but uh, useful ways of getting the Dharma into your life is to volunteer your service to a Dharma organization. Every Dharma organization that I know of is shorthanded. There's something to do, whether it's maintain mailing lists or help with retreats or whatever. There's, there's just a lot of work. Well, it puts you in contact with like-minded like people in uh, working situations, which is sure to provoke <laughs> something to work with. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, just because we're all in the Dharma scene, the Dharma family, doesn't mean we don't have our uh, limitations and challenges. So, um, it's a good way to get to work. Um, Establishing a practice at home is hard. Most of us have already have very full life, uh, and we're already trying to do more than 24 hours worth of living in 24 hours. And so the idea of carving out some time for doing nothing is just kind of, well, almost sounds preposterous. But my experience is that to the extent that I can find the time or make the time or make and keep a commitment to do a daily practice, it actually uh, creates a sense of more time in my life, more spaciousness in my life. It just helps to prioritize things a little better and to do things a little more efficiently or effectively and to let go of a tremendous amount that doesn't need to be done anyway. As Kamala said, you know, we have our to-do list and we have our not-to-do list. And we just have to kind of put those things on our no longer doing this list. And we do that from practicing and seeing what we can actually let go of. And that is really helpful. But the foundation, in from our perspective, the foundation for really establishing the Dharma in your life outside of formal practice like this is practicing the paramis. The paramis are the ten qualities of the awakened mind, like generosity, uh, 
contact, renunciation, energy, wisdom, patience, truthfulness, determination, renunciation, and I always forget one, <laughs> equanimity. Uh, and as you can hear from that list, these are not Buddhist uh, practices or Buddhist anything. They're not even particularly spiritual. They're just the qualities of any good human being, which we recognize in ourselves. We all we all have the spirit of generosity at times, the spirit of loving kindness at times, the spirit of understanding at times, but not always. <laughs> and patience too. I might add, frequently. And so, rem just remembering these as practices that we can do every day. Driving to work will probably give you an opportunity to practice patience every day. You know, we don't have to be sitting with our eyes closed in a quiet room with a Buddha Rupa in front of us in order to be practicing watching our mind and letting go of that which is causing us suffering. So. If you don't know the paramis, get a list of them, and uh, just remind yourself daily of these qualities and take the opportunity throughout the day to uh, cultivate them when their opposites seem to want airtime, you know, and to uh, really reflect on them and to bring them into your life. The reason that, the reason that we say this or encourage the practice of the paramis is the paramis, to the extent that the paramis are developed in your life, in your heart, in your mind, is the foundation for the degree of liberation possible in your mind. If you want to do anything to, to help support you having a beneficial and useful and deep retreat, next time you go on retreat, practice the paramis during the day. That is the most uh, direct foundation building uh, work of the mind that allows you to, in the solitude and silence of your own mind, to just let go. Just let go of whatever comes up. Because the heart is filled with, uh, you know, uh, the benefit of loving kindness and renunciation and equanimity and wisdom, as well as. Uh, when memories arise or when thoughts of the future arise, they're about service and generosity and living in harmony. And, and these are uh, a little easier thoughts and memories to have in the mind than all the other stuff you've been doing instead of the paramis. So that's why uh, the paramis are the, the, the support. In Burma, where this tradition that we practice in and teach from comes from, uh, the understanding there and the practice of many people, uh, certainly in the mon in and around the supporters of the monastery where I where I live, um, they do their they do their parami practice at home. Householders like yourself, like ourselves, uh, doing their work and raising their kids and doing what they got to do. And every year they go on a one or two month retreat to see how they're doing. And progressively over the course of years or several years or or less or more, more or less, uh, you can see the deepening of insight and the liberation that comes from deepening insight. So um, 
Sido Utejaniya says, you know, it is better to consider this practice as a marathon rather than a hundred yard dash. Uh, there's just no way possible to get it now, immediately. You know, I want it, that's it. Uh, whatever you can get that quick, you can lose that quick. But if you make a commitment, you have a kind of a daily practice of really becoming an embodiment of the Dharma and the truth and, and living in alignment with the way things are, then it's really hard to erase. It's really hard to lose. It's really hard to, to have it conditions conspire to pull you away from that because it hurts too much. Yeah, it hurts. It suffers. You suffer if you leave the Dharma. Once you get kind of aligned with living in alignment with the way things are and not struggling with yourself internally and others externally, yeah? uh, when you go back to that kind of mind, you feel it, you feel it, and you don't want to be there. So it takes a continuity of commitment and practices, a variety of practices, and surely the benefit comes. So, you want to add to that? Let me give you the... Uh, Maybe Let's see, just, this is just clip that on. Okay. Just hold this if you want to, or you can clip it okay. on. Just like to talk about how to take the practice home. I'm one of those people, like most of you, who started the practice when I had three children. Now I know not all of you have children, but you have busy lives, really full. And I had to start in a way that didn't include sitting every day. And that was a very powerful practice for me. I just had done. Um, a nine, ten day retreat with Anagarika Munindra. This was on Maui. And he came back to our house to spend a little time after the retreat. And he asked me, um, uh, do I sit every day? Can I sit every day? And I had to say, no. I can't promise you that I'm going to sit every day. I have children and they're all like under the age of maybe it was eight or nine that time, three children and I was single, and um, it was definitely a hell realm, you know. <laughs> it, it brought me, that suffering brought me to the Dharma, so I'm really grateful. My children aren't, they're angels, but just the conditions <laughs> of life. <laughs> children are children, yeah. <laughs> they're beautiful, but the conditions of life are, uh, are hard. So he said, um, what do you do the most every day? And I said, well, I wash the dishes. It was really easy to come up with that response because that's what I was constantly at the sink. So he took me to the sink and he stood right beside me on my right and he treated those moments when he taught me how to wash the dishes as if we were both under the Bodhi tree in, uh, in India and he was teaching me how to meditate. It was really that sacred of a teaching, of an instruction. And so he went about showing me how to be mindful in a general way and sometimes touching into the precision and the subtleties of what's going on. But he taught me that it's really important to be mindful 
wherever you can put mindfulness in a general way and kind of collect the mind and just be there for that event, for be, be there for what's going on outside of you and what's going on inside of you and uh, to always bring the attention back to your heart. So we did that and then he said, what else? And I said, well, I know that I walk down this hallway to get to um, the living room and dining room from the bedroom and vice versa. So he took me to the threshold of the bedroom uh, and he said, all right, now let's stand here and we're going to walk through this hallway making every step count. I'm just paraphrasing, not exactly like that. But he said, it's really important to, when you're walking down this hallway, just walking, just stepping, that's all. So that's what I did. And that's what I continued to do, that and also folding clothes and ironing clothes. That's what I continued to do until I was able to go to another retreat. And when I went to the next retreat that I could go to, because of that general mindfulness that I had during the day at home and around when I was working, uh, going to work, when I got into retreat, it wasn't like a big, big shift that I had to gather a lot of attention and energy and I, it wasn't new to me. I, it was seamless. It was much more seamless than it, it could have been because um, I remembered the time when I first got into retreat and that was a big bumpy road. But this was really seamless because the moments in between uh, when I was home, uh, when I would do my daily life, were full of mindfulness. And maybe not every moment and maybe it wasn't <laughs> all precise, but a large portion of it was. And so. Uh, that next retreat, the second retreat that I did actually happened to be, and, and also because I really took into account into my daily life to practice the paramis. And it was a very strong practice for me, really paying attention <coughs> to patience and to every place I could let go. It was very, very important to me. So all of that... Um, strength of heart and strength of mind followed me into the very, uh, that retreat that I went to. And my practice just went, um, it, it really helped to deepen the practice for me. So I really encourage you to take your practice home, take the in-between times as seriously as you do coming into retreats. It's more powerful than you can imagine to do that. It's not, um, it doesn't have to be a willy-nilly thing. Every time you remember to be mindful, just start then. It's constant starting over. So doing that at home and also doing periodic retreats when you can, wherever you're at now, if you've done a few four or five day retreats, I would, we both would recommend look for a longer one to do. Look for a nine or 10 day. You get much more momentum. Uh, in a longer retreat. And if you've done a few longer ones, like nine or 10 day ones, and you feel like you can take the jump, find a one month retreat or a three week retreat. At IMS they have them, um, Spirit Rock they do around here, they do also, I'm not sure, but uh, your Sangha will know and you can get information. 
So wherever you are now, see if you can take um, a step to a, a retreat where you can have more time, more momentum built up in your practice so that you can deepen your practice. More of the understandings awaken to us uh, when we have that continuity and momentum. And if you ever um, have in your mind, well, someday, I know a few people, maybe you might be thinking, I know a few people here in this retreat that have done longer retreats, six weeks, three months, and maybe I can do it. And then you have the thought, oh, no, that I can't do that. Don't give up that thought that you might be able to do a longer retreat because if that's what you have in your mind and you keep that intention, that intention will bear fruit. If you don't have the intention, but you have the thought, which is also an intention, that you'd never be able to do it, then you will never be able to do it. But really cherish those thoughts that are onward leading for you in the practice to keep the continuity and the deepening of your practice going. I like Steve, what Steve talks about is um, the kitchen counters. And uh, I just want you to, that's a really nice way of putting it. Uh, you know, at, at home when you do your day at the end of the day or somewhere during the day, you have to clean your kitchen counters and you just kind of organize things and tidy them up and wipe off the counter and throw it under the sink in the garbage and whew, ready for another day. And then another day comes and it gets piled up with crumbs and dishes and whatnot. And at the end of the day, you tidy it all up and put it all away and you're ready for another day. But even if you do that every day, oh, every season or a couple times a year, you got to do some spring cleaning. You really got to do some deeper cleaning and reorganize things, throw out accumulated stuff and you know, put a little more elbow grease into the whole process uh, to really get it clean so that it doesn't just kind of accumulate. Well, the same thing happens with your mind. You know, you go through the day. At the end of the day, you've accumulated a lot of crumbs, a lot of, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of unfinished conversations, a lot of loose ends, a lot of unexamined or unacknowledged emotions. There's just a dozen, dozens of you know half-formed thoughts and plans and regrets. And you know, it's like, wow, hey, do a little house cleaning. You know, do a little mind cleaning. Sit down, and just watch it on a spool for a while. And it might seem like all you're doing is just thinking about the day. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's just about it. You're just thinking about the day. But as you're thinking, you're just letting it go, letting it go, letting it go, letting it go. And kind of cleaning house for another day's, you know, another day's worth <laughs> in your mind. Uh, or if you don't do it in the evening, do it in the morning. Kind of clean house, organize your day, and, and head out into the day. Nevertheless, even if you do a daily practice and you keep your mind clean, daily, you still need to do a spring cleaning. Do a retreat a couple times a year just to get a little deep cleaning done where you're looking at uh, some, of the, some of the stuff that's gotten caught in the crevices of the mind, you know, and uh, <coughs> you need to do a little, get a little mental floss down in there <laughs> and uh, really get it out. So <laughs> that's why we need to do a longer retreat. Yeah, question? Um, where, where could one get some Yes. So the question is about the direction of the paramis, practicing the paramis. Hmm. You know, uh, I'm not sure. But I think, didn't Gil and Andrea? Oh, I think, yeah. if you check online, I think Gil Fronsdale in 
from the Insight Meditation Center in California. I think he did a whole thing on it, uh, a whole series of classes, lessons, talks. You certainly can find talks about all of the paramis uh, online. There's great, there's great Dharma resources online. Uh, just look up paramis and, 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 and go from there. Steve, um, we have um, ten talks on all the paramis. Yeah, we have, yeah, we did a, we've, we've done a couple of retreats where in the course of the retreat we just give a talk on all of them, ten. Each, each, each parami had its own talk. So you can at least find those on, online at Dharma Seed, uh, a talk on all of the ten paramis. And if you really get stumped and you can't find anything else, write to me. I have some worksheets on, <laughs> on the paramis <laughs> that I developed some time ago, but haven't looked at for years. So, yeah. Mm. A question for Camilla. Mm -hmm. Where did you sleep? <laughs> when? <laughs> the night at the wasps. Oh, oh they, they. What did you do with the wasps? <laughs> and your room? Well, somebody came and smoked them out and uh, sealed up all the places where they came into the room. So I was able to get back in much, much later. <laughs> yeah. Humane way to smoke them out. Well, yeah, they, they do what they can. They probably <laughs> did other things too, I don't know. But I was under the precepts, so I didn't do anything. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, it, it was a real uh, good practice for me to go through that. Really bow to the wasps. <laughs> yes? Um, I have a question about. Um, being mindful and how um, you were talking about in sitting meditation that, that we start with the breath and then we open ourselves to whatever else comes if I understood that correctly and then I think the idea is to use the breath when I drift I come back to the breath to, to reconnect and then and allow the spaciousness again am I understanding that correctly? Okay, and in, and in the walking meditation, I'm assuming that the focus on the step is used the same way as the breath, that, right. that we're not to be focusing on the step, but that's something to give us to, mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to interject one thing. When uh, the mind goes to something else, we, note, we notice that, we're mindful of that first, even if it's thinking, we note or, and notice thinking, and then come back to the breath, or go back to whatever else is predominant. Yeah. So it's not just, if it goes off, come back to the breath. Know where it goes to. Yeah. I guess one of the things I'm a little confused about is when I'm uh, either sitting or walking or, or doing anything, I'm, I'm trying to be fully present and, and recognize what I'm feeling, what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing, you know, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm wondering if, if I'm, if I'm going too far out there to be feeling the sun on my face, the wind in my, in my pants blowing on my leg and my feet on the ground, or, does that make any sense? Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes, uh, if you if you really just 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 take a just take a gander at how much is going on, it's like 
you know, to try to kind of register all that consciously and acknowledge it all, you'd just be scrambling. Well, that's not helpful, particularly. But at any time, and at any at any point in time, your mind, your attention could be called to any one of those experiences distinctly. And so it would be good to be able to recognize it, take note of it, take note of how you're relating to it. Sun, you walk outside, oh, the sun on the face, for example. Uh, you, so you feel warmth. How are you relating to that? Well, cold, when it's cold in the morning and you feel that sun on the face, you're relating to it with, ah, that's nice, that feels good. Later in the day, when it's 100 degrees and you walk outside and the sun, same sun, hits the face, same face, same sensation. You have a different relationship to it. It's like, oh my God, this is a little bit hot. This is too much. It's the relationship to the experience where the suffering is created or not suffering is created. The experience of the sun is going to happen when you walk outside. Okay? So, yes, we want to pay attention to whatever calls our attention. And we want to notice or take note of what is our relationship to it. Okay? We don't have to scramble around and run to try to fill up and catch everything. Just, you know, as, as the instruction says, just the most, the single most predominant thing at any one time. That's all. And of course then, <laughs> then our teacher adds the, adds the suggestion. Oh, you only have to note something once a second. <laughs> oh yeah, this and this. You know, just, just kind of tick it off, okay? Thinking, stepping, warmth, liking, thinking, breeze, cool. Okay, that's all. Just once a second for the rest of your life. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's hard. You know, uh, it's not hard to do in any one second. It's hard to do with any continuity. Yeah? Christine. Um, I have an equanimity question on a difficult person. I have difficulty <laughs> finding, uh, deciding on a difficult person in, in relationship to somebody in my life. Because um, may, there may be a difficulty with them at, at a moment in time or a certain time, but it's not, it doesn't last. It leaves. So <clears throat> I don't have anybody that's that difficult unless it's a momentary type of thing. Unless it's a former leader, then I have difficulty. <laughs> 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 and sometimes doing equanimity practice, that's what I that's who I chose to a former leader. But this last time I just tried to pick somebody in my life. Well, when that happens, by the way, I have mudita for you, uh, sympathetic joy. <laughs> if you don't have um, if you don't have anyone at that particular time when you're doing equanimity practice, it's okay. You you don't have to have anyone. Go right to your heart and just see what's happening there. It may be. You, you may be just noticing, oh, I have a dif there's difficulty finding someone. What does that feel like? You know, just go straight to your own heart. And sometimes, like in metta meditation or in compassion, we don't have a difficult person 
at times. So it's okay to skip it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so just following up on what you were just talking about, Steve, the, the sort of one note in to the next note in the next to the next for the rest of your life <laughs> sounds really dreadful. Um, it, you know, and I know that there are the gaps also and the, um, the peacefulness Can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah. yeah. The, the noting once per second <coughs> is a training. Yeah. And like with any training, initially it's kind of hard and it's kind of a struggle. And it's like, wow, remembering that this is what you want to do is hard, let alone doing it. But like anything else that you do repeatedly, it becomes habitual and it gets much easier. And at some point, it carries you along rather than you pushing it along. And so it really isn't as dreadful, burdensome as it might sound when I say once a second. You know, it's very easy to go for, you know, with, with, with a momentum of awareness to just, just being aware of things in a very uh, precise but continuous way without it being a big slog, a big struggle, and you know, kind of tying your mind to the rock you know, it, the mind just stays there. It just wants to be present. It wants to be present with whatever's going on. Uh, when there is a momentum to awareness, then what we call spiritual goodies arrive, arise. And spiritual goodies are, you know, just a sense of joy, spontaneous joy that can escalate to rapture or ecstasy. Uh, which when mellowed out is blissful and there are moments of great kind of absorptive tranquility and sense of spacious uh, spacious consciousness, uh, infinite consciousness, infinite spaciousness. There's just, well, there's all kinds of bells and whistles, lights and flashes, and there's just all kinds of uh, spiritual goodies. They come. If you practice, they will come, guaranteed. Take note of them. It's just another passing appearance in the mind. It's not the end of the show. It's not the end of the road. It's just a spiritual goodie. Now, imagine you're absorbed and you're just kind of cruising on this ecstatic, you know, blissful trip for, you know, a few hours and you're just noting Oh yeah, just ecstasy, just ecstasy, yeah, just bliss, just bliss. I mean, it's like, you know, we're not holding on, but we're not trying to push away either, you know. But we're willing to let it go. Why? Because those states of mind are actually very coarse, very uh, gross in term in relationship to equanimity, mature equanimity. And it's mature equanimity that is going to allow the mind to really let go of everything, let go of the known, access the unconditioned. So if you get hung up on some of these roadside attractions, you know, kind of scenic turnouts on the road, we say, uh, you won't get to the goal. So yeah, we just know, yeah, initially there's a little bit of excitement in playing with these spiritual goodies. You know, yay, wow, cool. And this could last for 
you know, depending on the skill of your teacher, I mean, this could last for a few days or a few decades. Really, without a teacher at this time in your practice, you will get caught. You will get caught. You, it'll be impossible for you. I, I say this because I've seen it in myself and, and every student that I've worked with that ever come across this, that these states of mind are so seductive that you will think, this is it. I finally got it. And you need a teacher that can affirm that, yes, you got this, but, well, as we say, there's better things ahead. If you can let this go, there's better things ahead. And uh, unfortunately, the next thing ahead is very difficult, very challenging, very uh, not blissful, not tranquil, not appearing to be very equanimous. And when you make the transition from this ecstatic, blissful, you know, tranquility, absorptive stuff, it's like, and you make the next step, and, and it seems like you're going backwards, because it just ends up being a struggle again, and painful, and just, you think, I'm going backwards. You will stop practice and try to go back to your what's familiar and enjoyable, and that is going backwards. That's the wrong direction. So you need a teacher that has been through this terrain that can say, fine, keep going. And the way to do that is to keep noting. And, and you'll get through it. You'll get through it, and you'll get to something that's even uh, much more refined than uh, ecstasy and bliss. I want to add on to that. And Steve's talking about intensive practice, not about everyday life. <laughs> okay. Unless you're just, really good. I really wanted to make clear that that <laughs> noting every second doesn't really happen in everyday life unless you're, you know, you're a long-term yogi in everyday life. But mostly it's general mindfulness, and it, that noting every second is not realistic. Um, but in intensive practice, as Steve says, it can happen. It's when uh, it's a period called effortless mindfulness, when mindfulness is really just carrying your practice along. There's there's no effort because the factor of energy and concentration and investigation and the balancing factors of the mind ha are really strong. Yes. Since you've had long experience being in a partnered relationship. Many of us have partners, either Dharma or non-Dharma. What suggestions would you have when we go home so they can better help us with our practice? <laughs> so they can better help us with our practice. That's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. So um, the Listen question... Listen carefully, Gary. <laughs> I don't... I, the question has to do with having partners and what suggestions when we go home so that they can better help us with our <laughs> practice. That's a good way. Never heard it that way. Well, I don't know all the answers, first of all, and um, the, the, the thing that we most often realize and talk about in our relationship that helps us is this: the ability to let go. And it isn't letting go and burying something underneath that we're seething about. It's really working on letting go of where we're attached or where, where 
you know, have some ill will or aversion about the other person or not just our partner but someone else in life. This is the, the strongest, uh, the renunciation of the ten paramis, renouncing greed, hatred, and delusion in our own hearts. And so this part has helped us the most. I mean, I think Steve would agree. He, we often talk about it. Does Gary get a turn? You know, uh, I think having the underlying understanding that you really want the other person to be free of suffering helps. And you want to support their practice to to uh, to realize that, and that means you know supporting them on retreat and supporting them in their daily practice. Uh, but let's not pretend that there aren't areas and times of tension and conflict in our lives. There are, and how are you going to handle it? You know, there's a certain amount of uh, processing that you can do, expressing and processing. But from my experience, an, uh, a predominant part of it is just, I have to let go. I have to do my own letting go. Now, is that Kamala helping me with my practice? Well, some people would say, yeah, when she's being a challenging object <laughs> to take. Yeah, right. When she's being a challenging object. You know, she's being my teacher. Yeah, well, that's... <laughs> That's spin. That's just pure, <laughs> utter spin. You know? <laughs> no teacher involved. No, we, don't, we don't try to teach each other. That's, you know, in this role, we're teaching. We're sharing. We're teaching. We don't try to teach each other. That's not, uh, that's not the nature of our relationship. <coughs> Yes. Um, how, how do you find a teacher? Because, I mean, I've read uh, different things, different statements that uh, I think the Dalai Lama says to watch a teacher for at least 10 years yes. before you choose a teacher. Yes. So I feel hopeless. <laughs> okay. So the, the, the question is how do you find a teacher that can guide you? Well, as you know, there are many teachers around. Uh, they didn't, they're not all here on site, you know, in Albuquerque or anywhere else. Um, so I think what's important is to kind of consider for yourself, what do you want from a teacher? What do you want? And, I mean, some teachers are just, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh and the Dalai Lama are just not going to be available. <laughs> uh, you know, if that's what you want. I mean, you know, let's be realistic. On the other hand, uh, you know, what kind of practice are you doing? What kind of teacher do you resonate? Who do you resonate with? After you've done a sampling of different spiritual teachers or, or even within a tradition, uh, you know, like the tradition we're in, the Vipassana, uh, mindfulness tradition, there's, you know, 50, 60 teachers. And you can do a sampling and find which ones you resonate with most now, which ones seem to really speak to 
your understanding or your needs or, or that you kind of grok, that you get on with, then, um, well, go to their retreats. And after you've established some sort of uh, relationship with them, and most teachers will expect or uh, will expect some kind of relationship in retreat. You know, the, the kind of relationship that you develop from public talks and classes is not really, the teacher doesn't get to know you very well. Mm -hmm. But in retreat, we get to know you. So then, uh, from a retreat perspective, if you feel that that teacher might be valuable to you, then approach them and tell them what you're doing, what your interests are, and ask them what's possible. Different teachers have different uh, time constraints, different geographical constraints, different interests in doing that. And I can't speak for uh, any of them except myself and, and know that some people I uh, make myself available to uh, for phone interviews if they have a commitment to uh, practicing with me on an ongoing basis. Did you, uh, did you watch some, a teacher for 10 years before you asked to be taught? No. Okay. So, I mean, even though the Dalai Lama says, yes, watch a teacher for 10 years before you make a decision, I think that a lot of us don't want to just be shopping or trying the smoggish board of teachers for 10 years. However, I think there is some wisdom in, in what the Dalai Lama says, uh, and and you know to 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 really look around and ask even even inquire of senior students of that teacher what that person's like you know how are they what's it like working with them for 10 years uh, so you can get that kind of information and then uh, you have to use your common sense uh, some teachers uh, you know there have been well documented histories of abusive teacher relationships well it's not over yet. It's not all in the past. It's probably still happening for all I know. I, I mean, I don't know of any, but you know, there probably are unskillful uh, teacher-student relationships. And uh, you know, check out the grapevine if you want to, and just see what, what, if there's anything that would raise a flag of warning in your mind. And if so, then heed that. Uh, generally, there's not much, you know, I, I think, but. Still, different people have different tripwires about things like that, and you want to just check it out. Um, and then, uh, you know, go from there. And I think, just generally to back up a little bit, I think, you know, in the beginning of practice, when you're first awakening to the whole dimension of a spiritual life or a life of awareness or whatever, there's a lot of there's a lot to check out, you know. There's there's the whole not just the Buddhist realm, but there's the whole, you know. There's 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 a lot that can be looked at, and I think some amount of sampling of the smoggish board may be helpful, you know. So you just get an idea of oh yeah, well here's here's a Zen taste, and here's a Tibetan taste, and here's a Adiya Shanti, and here's a what's that other guy Eckhart Tolle, and here's the Oh, here's those Mahasi Burmese Vipassana meditators, and there's the Utejaniya types, and here's some Zen master. Okay, so you try out this, and you know, okay, which one most resonate with you <coughs> at this time? Well, check it out. And you know, uh, I think a commitment to uh, a tradition or a, a teacher or a narrow segment of teachers, if 
uh, if you pick a tradition, uh, is necessary before you can go very deep. And to actually go to the end of practice, uh, I think will require you to have a single teacher that can follow your practice to the depths of your mind. There was one area that was really important to me, and it was not to choose a teacher where I felt uh, so, res so much resonance with that I just felt comfortable, and that I would just kind of be in a cushy place. And I chose teachers that would really challenge me in my practice and help me go to the edge of the practice, to my practice and further. So I really did choose teachers that um, I was willing to receive admonishment from and not ones that would coddle me uh, and not ones where it, all, it, it just fit into my present view of reality because um, it's beyond that, you know. So it, it really had to, the teacher had to challenge me. I think the great, I'm going to get to you. I think the greatest danger is to, um, one of the great dangers for us Westerners is to um, believe that if I agree with what this teacher is saying, then they are right. <laughs> uh, let me be quite honest with you. We all have a tremendous amount of delusion, and the power of self-delusion is immense. Now, how are you going to find a teacher knowing that you know, we are very willing to delude ourselves? That's a challenge. Intention to grow. Comfort is not a worthy goal. Let me just say, comfort <laughs> is not a worthy goal of your efforts. If if you're looking to be comfortable, well, uh, plenty of spas around. There's plenty of spas around. Yeah, there you go. It's true. Yeah, yeah, it's true, uh, and that's why we need to constantly look back at what's going on in our hearts and minds, <coughs> and not be so involved with the story that we're not looking here, and so you'll know if you're sandbagging it. Maybe you won't know then, and, and you think, okay, you've let go somewhat, let go enough to you know have some kind of harmony at the moment. But later on, you investigate your own heart, and you see, oh, there's something to work on there. You feel hurt, or you feel like, um, you know, you have a sense of pushing the person away, or you're t there's attachment to, I'm right about this, you know. And so we know that by coming back here. That, that's what this whole practice is about, this investigation, self, uh, 
you know, the sense of self-investigation that we're doing. So that's how we know through this awareness practice. You can take it back. Pardon? Take it back. You can indicate that you've let go, but then you haven't, so you, you take it back until pick, you can look it, it out. Yeah, I, I guess a more honest way to say it is I've, I've let go this much so far and still working on it, still working on it, yeah. And a lot of times, you know, there's just, um, we're both human and we're not fully enlightened and so, you know, we, we, we have disagreements and, you know, I don't have to hang out dirty laundry and there isn't that much, but, <laughs> but anyway, there's, <laughs> you really want to know. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Um, I have a few little ways that I, you know, the, uh, little mantras that I really just assess the situation and I, and I say, you know, it's not worth it. What, what I need to say or how I need to like do something to, it's just not worth it right now. So I just have little ways of letting go and they may be surface things, but then I, I really have to be with myself. and and not be in constant processing to, to know what's going on here. So one of the ways that's really been of benefit to us is thank goodness that Steve isn't a processor. He just is not into processing, and I'm not either, you know, so we're not about, we do some of it, but it's really about turning to our own hearts and taking responsibility for what's here and working there. So um, I can say that I'm just, I, I'm continuing to know. It's not that I know all the time. Yeah, there's layers. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh. oh, sorry. Oh. Can either one of you address <clears throat> the issue of, uh, I, I'm trying to create or manifest a new work situation in my life. And I get conflicted with uh, having a desire and nurturing that desire mentally. And is it you know manipulating energy? Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, it's enhancing desire rather than just the balance of, or rather than just letting things happen. What is supposed to happen next? Mm -hmm. Do you understand? It might be an articulate. Yeah. Sort of the new age, you know, affirmation. Affirmation, yes. right, yeah. I can say a little about that. Um, you know, <clears throat> this inclining the mind towards something that's wholesome, uh, to do something that's <coughs> benefiting yourself and all beings. When we turn the mind and our words and our actions in that, um, towards that, you can't say that's so much <clears throat> a desire which is connected with um, unwholesome states of mind, but that's more a quality called chanda. And this is different from tanha. Chanda is the will to do. Now that will to do can be uh, also wholesome and unwholesome. 
But when you know that it's turning the mind towards something wholesome, and it's not about being motivated by unwholesome states of mind, like I want to do this to make myself a, um, a, more, a famous person, or, um, but you know that it's for the good of your growth and the benefit of all, then this is, this is not like tanha. That's not the same thing. Also, um, when, you, when, you have no, when you know all that and you investigate all that, this is why we investigate what's going on in the mind. It's not just about sitting in bliss. It's about invest, what, what, is our minds do, what are our minds doing with our lives? So we know where we're coming from. We know where we're acting from. This is so important. When we do that, that kind of action, when we take that action, we can have great faith in our actions, in what we do. We can have great faith in ourselves, where we're coming from, where we're going to, the direction, the aspiration. Faith and, um, and attachment have one thing in common. It has the energy of seeking, seeking something in common. However, faith is based on wholesome qualities of mind. And what faith seeks are, is uh, knowing the truth, is doing things for the benefit of all beings, and in ourselves included, seeking out, hearing the Dharma, hearing the truth, practicing, being with good friends. This is, if you recognize your mind as this is, it's seeking that, then you can recognize the wholesomeness of, of your mind. The other kind of seeking has a, a, is a lot of delusion. It's accompanied by ill will. It's accompanied by attachment. Uh, that kind, that's tanha. So recognize, really recognize what your mind is doing. If it's uh, accompanied by unwholesome state of mind, that's where the parami of renunciation comes in and effort, yeah. I, I want to speak uh, to the question from a slightly different angle. And I want to speak uh, to it from uh, what does it take in our life to cultivate a sense of well-being in our life. And it's not just Dharma practice. You know, we need many other conditions to create a sense of well-being. And a sense of well-being is not just uh, having an abundance and a lot of pleasure. It's having a strength of mind and a kind of assurance of mind that can uh, sustain you in very challenging, difficult, even unpleasant situations. One of the um, very human requirements for a sense of well-being is that we uh, have a, some degree of autonomy and we are able to, in some way, support ourselves. And if we, if we somehow can't manifest our own energy and our own can't find our own interest to do that, and we just let conditions kind of push us about and we take what's left over and what comes our way as a gift, uh, it's going to be hard to have a, an enduring, strong sense of well-being. Okay? So in order to do that, we need to marshal a lot of the paramis, you know, a lot of energy, a lot of understanding, a lot of patience, a lot of truthfulness with ourselves and with others, and a lot of resoluteness, determination, and so these are the qualities that can be used both in 
establishing a career, finding a job, whatever that is, as well as you know a, a livable household and 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 the other things that you need to do to uh, support a sense of well-being uh, that involves not only just you in relation to your body and mind, but you in relation to others, you in relation to the larger community, you in relation to uh, the whole of society, you in relation to the planet. So, hmm. yeah. Hmm. Um, this sort of goes back to the teaching um, topic, but it seems like you both have had principally teachers who have been monastics. And I, and this sort of goes back to Diana's first question in her bundle today about how important that is. And she mentioned, you know, practicing in Asia, but it may be that, you know, practice with the monastic is possible here, or people like both of you who have sort of been practicing with monastics primarily. Could you talk a little bit about that? Um, just sort of how you see that for those of us who are mm -hmm. serious about this undertaking yeah. of training. Yeah, the question is, uh, uh, it's, it's uh, asked a lot. Um, there is a genuine uh, not knowing uh, whether the uh, transmission of the Dharma to the West is complete enough for someone to just stay in the West with Western teachers, Western opportunities, and really realize the full benefit of the Buddhist teaching. That's the question. Um, in the early years, of course, there was very few teachers. People had to go to Asia to get teachings and practice there and bring them back. There now are, as you know, lots of, lots of teachers. There are several well-established centers. There's a lot available. Uh, and yet still people find that at some points in their practice, some people still need and want to go to Asia to kind of touch into the roots of the tradition or a particular teaching. The thing that I found in my life was I, I practiced for 10 years before I ever went to Asia. So I knew all, I practiced with all the Western teachers or early, early years, and then went to Asia and then came back and started teaching. Uh, but the one thing that I felt in Asia is, in practicing in Asia is, there was a level of uh, faith. There was a level of faith among everybody in the monastery, from the cooks to the, you know, the, the sweepers to the, to the, uh, all the, the temple boys, and they've all done that practice. They all know the benefit of the practice. They all know what you're going through, and they know you can do it. And it's not even a question. It's just a matter of like, oh, we're so happy you're here. Great, <laughs> you're, gonna get, you're gonna see what we see. You're gonna get the benefit, great. Well, it's not always like that when you go to Western centers. You know, there's a lot of, uh, there are people going off in a lot of different directions. You know, so it sometimes isn't so apparent that there's that kind of confidence in the teaching and the practice that you'll be getting at that retreat, for example. So that was one thing that I found really uh, beneficial. The other is um, 
I have been blessed with a very simple mind. And I did my first retreat with uh, Joseph and Sharon and Jack and, and another teacher who's no longer living. And they introduced basically the Mahasi tradition of Burma with psycho Western psychological influence and Ajahn, influence from Ajahn Chah from the Thai tradition. And that's their basic introduction of Dharma. That's all I've ever done for 30 years. That's it. Just did that practice. It was totally satisfying to me. It was hard. It was challenging. I, you know, but I, I, you know, just wasn't interested or didn't didn't feel the need for. You know, I did one Zen retreat, one Zen Shishin, and a couple of Dzogchen retreats and whatnot. But they didn't add anything that I wasn't getting from my practice. So. Um, I think there's a certain mentality afoot in America that, you know, you have to get everything in order to get it. And you don't. You know, if you get one thing that really takes you to the bottom of your mind, that's all you need. You don't need to read every book, try every teacher, try every tradition, check it all out. No, you, don't, you don't have to do that. It's much simpler. And even in the time of the Buddha, often, students would get a single teaching and go practice for 20 years with it. Mm. Try that in America. <laughs> Whoa. What was the question? <laughs> I kind of lost track. But one of the things to remember is that when the Buddha passed away, as far as the Buddhist teachings, he um, didn't name anybody as his successor. <laughs> But he did say that the Dharma is your teacher. And so there are many bearers of the Dharma all around, you know, nearby, you, and there are teachings coming from every side. So um, although I've only, ta I've only um, been taught by Asian teachers, and I just see that there's a lot of good in the teaching all around. and. Uh, that it's worthy to open your ears and your practice to and see, just ask yourself the question, is this leading towards the end of suffering? Is this leading towards more harmony in myself and with others? And um, is, am I developing more wisdom? Those are the questions that somehow, some way, the Buddha uh, asked us to ask ourselves. And. Uh, or does it just keep reinforcing the same habit patterns and staying kind of like in our comfortable niches? And, uh, and that we have to practice. You know, our teachers always told us, I can only show you the way, but you have to practice. The Buddha solved his problem. Now you have to solve yours, is what Manindra would say to me. And um, he never, he and Upandita always turned it back to me. Uh, turn it back to the student, and there was never uh, an expectation that we had to believe them totally. It was always investigating, practicing, investigating for ourselves, because um, it's not a matter of just belief. We can't just hear a teaching and say, oh yeah, that's true. We have to find it out for ourselves, because if we just take what somebody else says that's true, it's true for them. Is it really true for us? And that's what we're finding out on, on the path. 
Um, so to just be comfortable what, with what somebody else has achieved, that's, that's not the path. But to take in what people say and see, can I live this for myself? Can I know this? Just as a final comment before we, we change topics. Um, the old generation of Asian teachers that a lot of us went to see, uh, Manindra, Deepama, Mahasi Sayada, Upandita Sayada, Ajahn Buddhadasa, Ajahn Chah, they've all passed away, or they're very old and aren't really taking on, uh, you don't have access to them if you go to Asia. So it's not clear who the new generation of Asian teachers are that Westerners are going to find uh, very helpful. Uh, Saido Utejaniya in Burma, he's younger than I am, he's mid-40s, I guess. Uh, he is one that's emerged as being, um, speaks a, a Dharma language that a lot of Westerners appreciate. There are still strong teaching tradition in the Ajahn Chah tradition at Wat Panana Chat in Thailand. Uh, but other than that, I'm not sure who, uh, for Asian teachers, uh, I would even encourage people to check out. So there's, there's that fact too, so, yeah. Okay. So a stretch, maybe. Mm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.